Welcome to City Life. You guys ready to jump right into the Word? Can we do that tonight? Taking a big old bite out of the Bible. So if you've got Bibles, uh, maybe you don't. Maybe you're using version. If you have neither of those, there's Bibles under your pew. There's basically no excuse to not have a Bible. But you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. But as you turn there, I want to start tonight with a verse we started last weekend with. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 25, and this is actually in the message version, where it says, at the center of all this, everything going on, everything in our culture, everything in our country, everything in your neighborhood, that's my add-on, but at the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world, the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So as believers... We gather in local bodies of believers like this, church worship experiences, because it's one of the ways that God fills everything with his presence. It says it right here in Ephesians 1, and it's where we walk not only in communion with God, but we walk in community with other people. I tell you, if you're not doing both of those, walking in communion with God, walking in community with the body of believers, if you're only doing one or the other, if you've somehow divorced the two, God wants us to have both. Otherwise, we're not walking in the life abundant that Jesus promises us. And if we look at the context of scripture, we see Paul says that God makes us new creations. And as new creations, he's created us for community, the church, where we go into the world to engage it and transform it through the truth of Jesus Christ. But in the world, in its different contexts, both historical and geographic and its different cultures, the gospel is received in different ways. And in the same way, different cultures and different contexts project different perspectives and paradigms back onto the people of the church. And there's always going to be this tension when, as the church, we're called to be in the world and in the culture, but not of it. There's a tug and there's a pull. And with this reality, it's important to remember that when we read our Bibles, when you pick up your Bible, these are historic texts, not just the narrative portions, but the epistles, the letters that, that Paul writes in the New Testament to these churches, right? Ephesians, we talked about last week, is to the church in Ephesus. Philippians, to the church in Philippi. Each one of these letters is to a real people living out a real cultural context in history. It's not like the Shire in Lord of the Rings, some made-up history or made-up place. No, these are locations in history where people were living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's powerful to look at those cultures and it's powerful to look at what Paul or the Bible says. So last week we looked at Ephesus. And actually it's, it's funny, the, what we looked at was sports culture and tied that into how does that project on the church. But tonight I want to look at the city of Corinth. How it ties into the, the letter of 2 Corinthians. And how that culture speaks to the gospel that they received. But as we spoke about last week, we did look at sports culture. And how in sports culture you've got a lot of passive observers and very few active participants. Like, you think about this last week. It was a big week for sports. The NHL and the NBA both completed their championships. So those championship games, you had millions of people watching globally. You had tens of thousands of people watching in the arena. But you only had a couple dozen people actually actively participating in the games. And for the most part, that's sports culture as we know it. We watch the sports, we spectate while other people uh, in these leagues, the professionals, the elite, they do the work of the game. And we talked about how in the church we flip that on its head. 
We're not called to passively spectate. We're called to actively participate in the work of the church, the ministry of the church. We talked about how this quote-unquote called a full-time ministry. It's not just for pastors or preachers or those that work in the church. It's a universal call for all believers because the work of ministry is the work of the front lines. And yes, there's ministry that happens here, but the true front lines of the church is what happens out there. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your, your school or your sports team, that's the front line of ministry. But that's last week. You can podcast that. You can go look that up. But again, tonight I want to look at Corinth. And I say all that because in the city of Corinth, sports culture was pretty big. There was an arena there that held 14,000 to 18,000 people. They had uh, uh, games called the Isthmian Games celebrated every two years in Corinth that were second only to the Olympics in size and prestige. But it wasn't always like this. Because in 143 B.C., this thriving Greek city-state was taken over by Rome. It was left in ruins for a century, totally destroyed. But then Julius Caesar, about a century later, realized that it was an advantageous location, both for travel and for trade, both by sea and by water. So he's like, let's rebuild. So being a new city, it held the door open for all kinds of economic and social opportunities. So it became a hub for people that were looking to climb the ladder of upward mobility. Corinth became a freewheeling boomtown, not unlike the old American frontier in American history. And the quote-unquote Corinthian dream, if you could call it that, wasn't much different from the American dream. That here we can climb the ladder of social mobility and make something for ourselves. By Paul's day, when he's writing these letters to Corinth and he's going to Corinth, it's the wealthiest city in Greece. It's a major urban city, and one historian said that the stereotypical Corinthian identity, according to records, was known for being crassly materialistic, self-confident, and proud. And I don't mean to be harsh, but that kind of sounds a lot like our culture, right? Kind of sounds a lot like our Western culture, our American culture. A, a theologian and historian, William, William Dyerness, wrote a book about American culture and the church, and he said, in many respects... American identity is established in material terms. We define ourselves by our relation to our material environment, perhaps more than our relationship to other people or even God. He goes on to say that this has resulted in great material prosperity and great technological accomplishment we can readily acknowledge. But we know the dark side as well. Americans invariably tend to endow material means with ultimate or final value. Owning a home, for example, is seen as one of the ends of life rather than as a means to other ends. He says meaning is attached to accumulation and consuming. You know, we live in a consumer culture. And naturally, because we live in the world, it affects our perspectives and our way of thinking. If we're not careful, it can affect where we find our security, can affect where we find our joy, can affect where we find our hope. Because our consumer culture, it pulls on us even in the church defines how we define ourselves, how we find our identity. And that's no doubt why the call to live generously in Scripture is so quickly drowned out by our culture. A call to a life of giving challenges our consumer culture directly, and I think it's why we skirt the issue so quickly, even in the church. But Paul dives right into the subject with little hesitation in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-15, through 15, which I want to read right here in my Bible. Again, we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. And Paul says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they're very poor. 
but they're also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here is my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first who wanted to give, and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now you have plenty and can help others who are in need. Later they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As Scripture says, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. So that's this sizable portion of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, again, in this Corinthian culture. And at this point, when he's writing this letter, he's had a pretty extensive history with this church. Like, he helped them get founded and get the ball rolling. But then after he left, kind of went haywire, went a little sideways. There was sin present in the church, and that's why he writes the first letter to the church in Corinth, what we call 1 Corinthians. But they received that letter, they read it, and a lot of people ignored it because they disregarded his authority as an apostle. I mean, think about it. They're in this wealthy, materialistic culture, and here's Paul preaching Christ crucified, talking about treasures in jars of clay. They're probably thinking, yeah, whatever, dude, and rolling their eyes. And you look at Paul himself. He was poor, of no status, often homeless, under constant persecution, and to a culture that valued wealth and valued status, what use was his teaching to them? But Paul follows that letter up with what he calls in 2 Corinthians a painful visit, all right, probably some hard conversations had, and then he speaks of a letter that he wrote with tears, and then in response to that, the church of Corinth wanted to reconcile. They were repentant, so that's what sparks the letter of 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians, we see Paul start by defending his apostleship, defending his authority, and then he goes on to this reconciliation and what the fruit should be of their repentance, and in chapter 8, he takes a hard turn towards giving giving toward the church in Jerusalem that had been experiencing a famine. And I've seen some people who study 2 Corinthians, and they think, man, that's such a, a strange, hard turn to another subject. It must have been added later on. Like somebody must have edited the letter or slid this in from one of Paul's other letters. But I would ask, the question I would ask is, should we be surprised that Paul ties together a repentant heart and giving, faith and our finances? Because if you turn back to the Gospels, like, you look at John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, he's talking about the fruit of repentance. And three separate groups come up to him, and they ask him, what should this fruit of repentance be? 
And in verse 11, he says, everyone should share their clothes and food with the poor. In verse 13, he says, tax collectors shouldn't pocket extra money. Verse 14, he says, soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money. Each answer has to do with money and materialistic things. And you say, they didn't ask anything about that. Why you got to go there, John? Right? You look at Jesus, though. He begins his ministry with the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he goes on in his ministry to spend what some say 15, some say 25, so I'll say 20% of his teaching and his recorded words in Scripture on wealth, money, and material things. Notably, you look at Zacchaeus' interaction with Jesus, right? We little man, was he up in the tree? Jesus, I'm going to have dinner with you. You keep going past the children's song. He has dinner with Zacchaeus. And at the end of the story, Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. And Jesus' reply here is striking. He says, salvation has come to this home today. Now listen, I want to say this early on. Giving, generosity, they don't earn your salvation. Nothing we do earns our salvation. But we see that generosity clearly was a mark of Zacchaeus' repentance and faith, according to Jesus. So Paul has twice the reason to dive into generosity and giving. Because he doesn't just have the teachings of Jesus. He has the life of Jesus, the full life of Jesus to pull from. He points to it in verse 9 of our passage where he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. See, at the heart of the gospel is a heart of generosity. A life of generosity reminds us of Jesus Christ. A lifestyle of generosity and acts of generosity remind us of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you might say to me, I, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I might reply, well, okay, how generous are you? And you might say, well, what does my faith have to do with my generosity? And I'd say a whole lot. Because if we're called to follow Jesus, be like Jesus, and Jesus is generous, then we should live generously. If Jesus came to give, even like to the extent of giving his life, then we should live lifestyles that give. We should live a lifestyle of generosity, not because we have to, but because we get to because of how richly God has blessed us. See, at the heart of a consumer and at the heart of our consumer culture is a desire to receive. But at the heart of the gospel is God's desire to give. For God so loved the world, he gave. See, to be a Christian is to step more and more into generosity, to step from a perspective of getting to a perspective of giving, from a perspective of consuming to a perspective of contributing, from a perspective of being served to serving. Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to be served but to serve. So often in life we get that in reverse because of the culture we live in. But again, to try as we may to divorce our, our finances from our faith, they're inseparable in Scripture. There's a fundamental connection with our spiritual lives and what we do with material things. Generosity and giving is not just a financial issue. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue with financial implications. Yet we're so often blinded to it. Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. It's probably a verse you've heard. Maybe you haven't, but he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. This means it's straightforward. My eyes are working. There's light in this room. They'll receive that light. I'll be able to navigate, not run into this table or that mic stand. But if my eyes aren't working, this room can be full of light, and I'll be running into pews and stumbling all over the place because I'm blind. So often, we take that verse and we apply it to sins of the eye, lust and the like, sexual issues. But I came to realize this verse isn't surrounded by discussions on lust. 
versus surrounded by discussions on money. In Matthew 6, the grouping in my Bible is called teaching on money and possessions. Then in Luke 11, it's even more explicit. In Luke 11, Jesus tells this example again. How many of you guys know when you're a traveling preacher, you use the teaching more than once? Those guys that go to conferences and slay it, man, they preached that before, and that's why it's amazing, right? So Jesus gives this teaching again in the Gospel of Luke, and then he says immediately in Luke chapter 12, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus says watch out about money and greed because it hides itself. You can struggle with greed and not even realize it because you're standing in the dark. He doesn't have to say watch out about other sins, other commandments like adultery. You know if that's your wife or not, right? You know if that's your husband or not. You don't commit murder and then forget about it. Like, oh, that slipped my mind. I killed that guy, right? No, that doesn't happen. But greed can hide in your blind spots. Materialism can hide materialism. I've been in ministry for seven years now. Common confessions without calling anybody out. Anger, lying, lust. Never heard anybody in seven years say, you know what, I struggle with greed. I struggle with materialism which is kind of striking when you consider the culture we're in. I'd argue a lot of us probably wrestle with this, not to even call ourselves out, but just to recognize. And that's why Paul closes his second letter to the church in Corinth amidst wealth and materialism, much like our culture, by saying, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Check your blind spots. Test your faith. You want to check up? A lot of times when I'm meeting with somebody, we... we we call them 12 pathways here. It's just 12 disciplines. If you're following Christ, these are paths you'll walk in from reading God's word to prayer to fasting to gathering for worship to evangelism and reaching. All these different things, generosity, stewardship, service, and rest. You want a, what Nate would call a checkup from the neck up, right? You want a, a check on your faith, then check on those things. Test where you're at in those areas. And Paul gives a, us a checkup in 2 Corinthians 8 for generosity. He gives us a, a test. He says it in verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. But it's ironic if you keep reading. He says it's not a command. But then in verse 11, he says, now finish the work. That's pretty imperative, right? Like that's, that's pretty commanding. Is he contradicting himself? It, it, you begin to study his letters, his habits. You'd, you'd realize that Paul's point, the, the stance I subscribe to, is he's saying this isn't a command of Christ. But this is something as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ that I'm imploring you guys to step into, a moment of generosity. But the debate goes back and forth. Was he commanding them? Was he not commanding them, right? Because he says he doesn't command them, but then he does. And, and I think it's because we so often have this impulse to pit God's commands against his grace like they somehow can't coexist, especially with giving. We think, how, how, how can that be? Because we see giving, we see tithing as legalistic or a matter of the law that's incompatible with living under grace. But we see in Paul's letters that there's no conflict between God's grace and his commands. God commands what he commands because he promises what he promises. God's commands merely express how the experience of his grace will manifest itself in our everyday life. And sure, some of these commands are cultural, like uh, unclean food, circumcision. Those got passed over in history. But to Paul, this is clear. As it was for John the Baptist and Jesus himself, if we experience God's generous grace, then we'll walk in generosity. To them, it's as simple as that. This opportunity to give for the church in Corinth to Paul was a test to show that they were walking in the generous grace of Jesus Christ that he talks about in verse 9. And we, too, have a similar test. And shout out to any students that are here, college or high school, that just took tests to close out the year. And now you're into the summer. But I was reflecting, thinking about tests. Man, when I was in high school, 
you wanted to find somebody, like especially if you're taking the test late, who had taken the test, right? Get those questions. Know what's on the test. The reconnaissance of the truly desperate is find that person that has the test, a copy somehow, right? I didn't know Jesus when I was in high school. This is where I, this is, I got good grades because I studied, but I, all right. But uh, you want the questions ahead of time. And with this test for our generosity, this test for our heart and our faith and our response to God's generous grace, there's four questions you can pull from this text in 2 Corinthians 8 so we can check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. I had to go there. But the first question is, am I surrendered? And you might say that's it's kind of weird because the word surrender was nowhere in this passage in any translation we were reading from, most likely. But I would point to verse 1 in the NIV It reads, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. It's a work of grace. Again, what verse 9 calls the generous grace of Jesus Christ. The the band Thrice just came out with a single last week. Some of you don't even know who that is, but Levi does, and he led worship tonight. So greatest band of all time. You can fight me later on that. But what? (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, you, no, come at me. Old song. That old song is called Beggars, and it could have been written to the Corinthian culture as well as our American culture. And there's a lyric in the song where he says, you big shots who swagger and strive with conceit, did you devise how your frame would be formed? If you'd be raised in a palace or left out on the streets, choose the place or the hour you'd be born. Tell me what can you claim? Not a thing, not your name. Tell me if you can recall just one thing that's not a gift in this life. Can you see now that everything is grace after all? If you can adopt a perspective that everything from your breath to your paycheck is a gift of God's grace, that's a game changer. Because often our focus with grace is this reality that grace covers our sin. It's this gift of mercy and forgiveness, and obviously that's crucial, that's key, that's at the heart of our salvation. So praise God for that. But we shouldn't just stop with the question, what is grace? And we should ask the question, man, what isn't grace? What isn't grace? Because in our consumer, materialistic culture where we identify with our material possessions, the temptation is to take credit for our giving, giving back to God, when rather it should be giving God praise for even making it possible. Man, I tell you tonight that giving isn't our way of showing God what we can do for him. It's our way of highlighting all that God has graciously done for us. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you couldn't give him anything that was not, in a sense, his already. Praise God that he gives us grace to cover our sin. First and foremost, always. But as Paul says in Acts 17, verse 25, our God is so gracious that he also gives everyone life and breath and all things. Everything we have is a product of grace. And why is this so key? Because, again, we like the grace that deals with our sins so we can take our failings and our sin and and lay it at the foot of the cross. But when God asks us to be generous with those things he's given us by grace, we squirm. You know, a follow-up question to this question on our test would be, how can I justify rushing to give God my sin but drag my feet when it comes to giving him back what he's graced me with? Again, the question in light of God's all-encompassing grace becomes, am I surrendered? If it's an all-encompassing grace, am I fully surrendered to his will? Am I fully surrendered to him with my life, with my belongings? Because biblical generosity is the same as all our Christian walk. 
But you talk about giving, you go towards tithing, a lot of common questions come up. Is it really still required? Didn't it go the way of the whole, like, not trimming your beard and avoiding barbecue and pork, right? Don't eat bacon. Didn't it go the way of those commands? Or, or should I tithe gross or net? Does God accept me to tithe when I'm struggling? Is it, I tithe my time to the church. Isn't that enough? But all these questions, they kind of miss the point. Because they ask, what's the least, most basic measure I can give and still be blessed? But biblical generosity is the same as the rest of our Christian walk. God doesn't want 10% of your time. God doesn't want 10% of your thoughts. He wants 100%. He wants it all. Because it's about total surrender to an all-powerful, all-loving God who bore not 10% of our sin, but all our sin, who gave all he had at the cross and by his grace gives us all things. Like the song, the hymn doesn't say, I surrender 10%, all to you, my precious Savior, I surrender 10%. It says, I surrender all. So the question is, am I living fully surrendered in every area of my life? And there's a great quote by Randy Alcorn where he says, giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and it exalts him. Again, I, I said earlier that you really can't divorce finances from faith. And, and I've been doing premarital counseling for two couples I just married. And when I do it, there's a whole session where we talk about finances because surveys and stats will tell you that's the number one conflict in marriage. I tell them, look, if you don't talk about your finances, be clear about your finances, your dreams, what you want to do with your money, how you want to apply it, man, you're going to head towards divorce. So one thing I tell them in that session is just adopt this perspective. I own nothing. I own nothing. It all belongs to God. I'm his steward. What does that mean? It means your time, energy, resources, talents, gifts, they weren't meant to terminate on themselves. They're meant to be given back for the glory of God. Not for consumerism, but to steward well so that we can use them for God's glory. To surrender back to God. So the question, the first question on our test is, am I truly surrendered? The second question, another powerful one is, am I content? When I bring up materialism and greed, and I preach on it, a majority of us right now would think, man, is this really applying to me? Because in our minds, sometimes we don't have all that much. There's always that neighbor with the nicer car. There's that person who has it better than we do. So some of you probably don't want to hear about this, not because you're mean-spirited or hostile, but you just think, does this even apply to me? But you know the other side of that coin when I tell them, hey, you need this perspective that I own nothing? I said the other side of that coin is you need this perspective that I have everything. Okay, maybe not everything, but certainly Everything we need, compared to the, the world, we have it so well in terms of having our needs met. And some stats that I share with them is, man, one billion people in the world don't have access to clean water. The average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water a day. Every seven seconds, somewhere in the world, a child under five dies of hunger. The average American household throws away 14% of the food it purchases. And then the, the trash cans they're throwing that in, this is a crazy stat. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half the world does on all of its purchases combined, on trash bags alone. Another stat I always look at when I'm driving around is 8% of the world population has a car. I drive around, I see people in cars, I'm like, this is the norm. 8% of the world population has a car. If you have a car, you're in the elite. How many of us have two cars? Maybe three cars. You're in the elite of the elite. You're the upper tier of the elite. We watch that Lexus commercial and think, man, that must be nice. But 92% of the world is looking at me when I used to drive a 92 Honda and thinking, that must be nice, right? We are the commercial to the rest of the world. Why do I share those stats? Not to give these people that are about to be married a guilt trip or not to give you a guilt trip tonight, but just to consider we are so richly blessed. 
And when you have this worldwide perspective, it can keep your perspective in check. When you can't afford that new car, it's like, all right, we're going to be okay, right? You can't afford that house. It's all right. We're still richly blessed. We have a roof over our heads. I got to get rid of cable for a season to make the ends meet. Guess what? You'll be okay. Been there, done that, still there. It's all right. (laughs) But in contrast to the world, man, we have everything we need. But again, a question under that question, an important sub-question, even if we didn't, would you still be content with Christ? Or is your source of contentment material things? Is your source of security your savings account? Or is because the one that serves as your source in these areas is the object of your worship. That's why Paul uses generosity and giving as a test for the church in Corinth. And he uses the church in Macedonia as a contrast to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth had dragged their feet for a year on this offering. And he says, yo, the church in Macedonia is begging me. Literally, they'd been begging, insisting persistently that they wanted to give. So he uses this church in Macedonia in contrast, and it's notable because we see in Scripture, it says in the NIV again, that they were living with severe trials and extreme poverty. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. We see that the goal isn't to wait until you have a, a certain amount of finances or or resources to step into giving and generosity. The Macedonians certainly didn't. The common course, though, is if if I earn more, I'll start giving. But if you look at priority percentage giving, or you look at 10%, as you earn more, that grows. It's still as hard to swallow. It's really a matter of priority, not a matter of provision. It's a matter of response to God's grace. Again, this grace, as it says in verse 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Now, this isn't a call to wealth because he lives to make us rich, nor is it a call to poverty because it says, well, Jesus, right, made himself poor. But as you look at the context of this scripture, it's talking about the, the, the impoverishing the word I'm looking for, the impoverishment that happened in the incarnation spiritually when he left heaven to take on flesh. It's not talking about Jesus left stacks of money next to his throne in heaven. They're not talking about that kind of riches and that kind of poverty, but it's saying, look, this step he took impoverished himself spiritually for our account so that we could have the riches of God's grace, his presence, his promises, whether it's in this life or the next. So it's also not a command to take up poverty as if that's the goal and material things are evil. Nowhere in Scripture you're going to find that. And Paul basically contradicts that in, in verse 13 as he says, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard on yourselves. It's not a universal call to poverty like Mother Teresa, although clearly she shows us some people are called to that. More power to them, right? But it is a call to love like Jesus. If you go back to his first letter to Corinth, The famous passage that again gets read at so many of these weddings in 1 Corinthians 13 about love. He says, even basically says, even if you gave away everything and stepped into poverty, but it wasn't out of love, it means nothing. It's got to be out of love. So how do we know if we're doing it out of love? That's why we have the third question on the test. And the third question is, am I joyful? It says, in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So poverty, again, doesn't rob them of their generosity. But if you look at what Paul says, his concern is not about the budget. His concern is not about the number. It's about the heart, the fruit of God's generous grace in the life of these believers. What's crazy to me is if you look at this passage and you look at the original Greek, in this short passage, Paul uses six different words to describe this offering and this collection for the church in Jerusalem. 
I'm not going to butcher the Greek, but I'll tell you what the English translation for these words are. Collection, priestly service, ministry, blessing, fellowship, and grace. Collection, priestly service, ministry, blessing, fellowship, and grace. So we see in this passage that for Paul, the, the giving has a multitude of meanings in the life of the believer, yet not one of these words explicitly has to do with money. They have to do with our heart. They have to do with our worship. Paul's chief concern is not a monetary amount. It's the condition of their hearts and their worship. Because you could read that and ask the question, how in the world can you have overflowing joy and rich generosity in the midst of severe trials and extreme poverty? The only explanation is that your God isn't money. You don't worship money. Because if I worship a God of, of material things and money, and I find my joy and security in that, and that God is dead and gone. I'm in extreme poverty, and it shows no sign of resurrection. I have no reason for joy and generosity. But if my God is Jesus, then the source of my joy and generosity is still alive and well. Therefore, my joy and generosity go on no matter the circumstance. Poverty couldn't take the Macedonians' joy, couldn't take their generosity because wealth didn't give it to them. The world couldn't take it. Circumstances couldn't take it because the world and circumstances didn't give it to them. Jesus did. Am I joyful? Lastly, am I eager? Verse 12, Paul says, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. Then again, he says early in, earlier in this passage, they begged us, begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. The Macedonians, these people who had extreme poverty, were walking through trials, were begging Paul repeatedly to give. What a contrast to our culture where often we're trying to dig around for excuses to not, to bow out. But they were eager. They were expectant. Why would they be eager? Why would they be expectant? Well, maybe it's because you've, you've probably heard people say this. You can't outgive God. Or you begin to talk about uh, giving an offering and you point back to Malachi 3 where it says, test me in this. You talk about test. God says, test me in this. Only place in scripture where he says, test me. Give to me. So give an offering. I'll pour out blessings upon you. Right, so we love to quote that when it comes time to give. And certainly, some people are blessed in this life. But others, they don't see it. We don't get any account of the Macedonians where, like, they're walking in wealth all of a sudden later on because they gave and they sowed generously. What if those blessings Malachi is speaking of isn't just about this life, but it's talking about treasures in heaven? Because it's probable, and I would say it's very likely, that these Macedonians were giving with Jesus' command in mind to store up treasures in heaven. And this verse isn't talking about uh, taking our treasures with us. When you see a hearse driving down the road, there's no U-Haul behind it because you can't take what you have in this life with you. And it's not talking about transferring your treasures here and transferring those treasures up to heaven like there's some kind of Brinks truck, that, like the fiery chariot that came to get Elijah. There's no Brinks truck that comes down to get your treasures to take those up to heaven. When Jesus talks about this, he's talking not about transferring treasure, but seeking a whole new treasure altogether. And in our materialistic culture, we often look as, at these words, God's blessings, as here and now blessings in material things. But giving is an exercise in recognizing that material things can't compare to eternal things. Jesus isn't against planning for your future, right? Jesus is all for stewardship. Jesus is all for planning for retirement. But when Jesus says, commands to store up treasure, his focus isn't 30 years down the road. It's like a million years down the road. He's talking about eternity. He's not just talking about planning for retirement. He's talking about planning for eternity. 
And giving is the instrument that teaches us to recognize that the kingdom of God and its righteousness are themselves the real and only treasure worth having eternally. That's why Paul shares this test on money. Paul isn't trying to raise money for a private jet. (laughs) He's He's not doing that. Nor is he looking to get rich, right? Again, this is a man who lived homeless and persecuted his whole life. His eye was on the eternal finish line and the prize God had waiting for him in heaven. That's what he says in Philippians 3, this powerful passage. Why did Jesus share so much about money? 20% of everything he said that's recorded in Scripture about money, materialistic things. Why? Why? Why does he speak so much on possessions? Not because he was trying to get rich. Jesus told his followers, look, I don't have a place to lay my head. Often, right? He was a vagrant. But so often when we hear about it shared these days, we, we think that. What's the motive here? So let me assure you. Right? If you've been to our business meetings, it's like a praise party every year. Right? We're growing. We're not shrinking. We're set to hit our target. So I don't share this for that reason. I don't share this to, to, to sow condemnation or shame if you don't step into moments of generosity. But I do share it as a concern. Because last weekend we, we talked about, again, the front lines of ministry. The play that we're called to engage in is the Great Commission. And there was this survey This very big survey, thousands of people in the church, 51%. What's the Great Commission? Didn't ring a bell. Didn't ring a bell. The play that we're all called to walk in daily, making disciples of everybody, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us and given us. That's our Great Commission. 51% of the people in the church that they surveyed, uh, doesn't ring a bell. Never heard of it. That's crazy. That's concerning. I saw another stat this week, though. A recent study showed that one in four American churchgoers that call themselves Christians don't give a dime. Not just to the church, to anything. To anything at all. Don't sponsor a kid, you know, send money overseas to this or that. They they don't sow anything. One out of four in the church. One out of four. Not giving, getting. Consuming, not contributing. Failing the test. And I don't doubt that every one of these people would say that they love Jesus. And I wouldn't tell them that they don't. But Jesus' commandment, all his commandments, are summarized in two commandments. Love God, love people. Another teaching of his that we're so familiar with, where your treasures are, there your heart is also. Basically saying, where you sow your finances, that's what you love. You can show me what you love by showing me your bank account. You say you love your family, you make $100,000 a year, how much do you invest in your family? Not a dime. Do you love them, right? So if you say you love God and you love people, but you don't give a dime ever to anything, like one in four people in our culture, do you truly love them? See, Paul's passage that we're looking at, it's a massive transition in a materialistic culture or a culture of consumerism like Corinth. He's saying don't love your money. He's saying love with your money. You know, what we so often misquote in our culture is that money is the root of all evil. Again, nowhere in Scripture does it say that or that material things are bad or we're called to poverty. What it does say is the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you want to shake yourself loose from that grip, because in our materialistic culture, it does try to grip us, this love for money. You want to shake yourself loose, don't just love your money or don't love your money at all. But the way to shake yourself loose is love with your money. Begin to live generously. You know, we have a toddler in our home. It's two and a half. We adopted him from India. A lot of you know this. We adopted him when he was 17 months old. 
So there's been a lot of growth in just about one year. Because those first 17 months, we're talking a battle royale, no holds barred for anything you want, whether it's a toy, food, affection. He's fighting everybody. And his bunkmate was twice his size. I called him Charles Barkley because he was huge. I don't know what his name was, but that was his life. He had to fight for all things. So for him to share, it's a pretty big step. And he's getting better at it. And this week, he's done this before, but it was just a sweet moment because we were all there. He's sitting on the couch, and he had a Ziploc bag full of kettle corn popcorn. That's like his jam right now. He loves popcorn. So it's like his favorite food, and he's sitting on Steph's lap. And what he does when he wants to give you a bite of food is he goes, ah, like right in your face, 120 decibels. Because that's what, you know, we're like, ah, open your mouth, ah. So he's doing that back to us. He can't talk at all yet. So this is how he communicates. And so Steph opens her mouth repeatedly and puts the popcorn in her mouth, and then he smiles. And you can just see he's full of joy because he's, he's feeding his mom. And Steph and I are just sitting there like proud, right, because he's sharing, thinking, man, he's come so far because it wasn't like that, and sometimes he'll get so excited that he'll just slap you as he feeds you, but so he's still a work in progress. If you've seen him, you know that, but uh, I say that because when you're a babe, you expect people to feed you. Matter of fact, when we got Raj at 17 months and we put food in front of him, he, he didn't even, I don't know if he couldn't, he didn't have the concept of picking up the food and putting it in his mouth, because in the orphanage, they'd put him somewhere, throw food in their mouth, throw him back in a crib. He didn't even understand taking something bite-sized, putting it in his mouth. Didn't even register. But as a babe, we think, man, people are going to feed me. But as you grow, as you mature, you begin to feed yourself, which Raj now does, but then you begin to feed others, right? It should be the same as we grow and mature as believers. To grow in God's generous grace means that as you mature, you'll grow in generosity. Let me tell you, if your number one concern as a Christian is what about my needs, your number one need is to grow up, right? To grow more like Christ who didn't come to be served, but to serve. Not to get, 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 but to give even his life. Again, in our consumer culture, the chorus is serve me, give me. But in church culture, as we imitate Christ, our call is to not to come to be served, but to serve. Not to come just to receive, although we receive powerfully on nights like this, but to also give. Not just to consume, but to contribute. And then the question becomes, okay, how much? How much of my time are you looking for? How much of my talents? How much of my finances? Paul doesn't give us an explicit standard in this passage for giving. He doesn't. But you can't walk away from that passage and think that he doesn't give us a standard of giving. And if you were to dig around in Scripture, right, go through the Bible, look at the Old Testament where they were called to this 10% tithe that Jesus says don't neglect, and then you look around at other things they were supposed to give to, to the priests, to festivals, we're talking like 30% of their belongings were given back. And maybe you're like me, you're thinking, I can't do that. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, I can't even do 10% right now. And I would say, just start somewhere. It's like all the other spiritual disciplines. People tell me, like, look, I can't read the Bible for an hour every day. Read for five minutes. Read for ten minutes. That five minutes of silence that your child gives you during the day. Find that. Get your Bible, right? I can't pray for an hour. Pray for 15 minutes. I can't rest for 24 hours. You don't know my job. Find six hours where you can unplug from email and those work calls and be with your family and be with God. Start somewhere. So, again, for Paul, it wasn't about whether they gave $4, $40, $400, $4,000. It was about answering these questions. Am I fully surrendered? Am I content in Christ? Am I joyful, and am I eager to give? If I could have the worship team come up, we'll end this week where we started last week. Jesus says in the book of Matthew, he says, he says I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. 
See, we're called to find a church where we can say, this is, this is my church, right? This is where I'm going to build God's kingdom, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. There should be a sense of ownership in where you go to church. Man, this is my church. This is how I'm going to build God's kingdom in this region through this local gathering of believers. Because in the New Testament, almost about 90% of when it uses the word church, it's speaking to a local gathering of believers. Find one where you take ownership, where there's communion with God and there's community with people, where you can sow into your faith with God and in God and you can sow into fellowship with people. And again, some people would say that I give to a charity over here and this GoFundMe over here, and that's how I exercise generosity. I'm not going to condemn that. We do the same. But I contend that that's because often we lack a place where we have ownership. God has a church home for you, a place that you can call my church home, a place where we get to know Jesus and get to know people. And I don't sow money into just any home. I sow money into my home, my roof. That Raj lives under, my wife lives under where we're fed. So I'll just tell you, Jesus says, I will build my church. Every one of us should have a place that we call my church. Might not be here tonight. Man, let us help you find that place where you can say, this is my church. Have a sense of ownership and say, I'm going to build God's kingdom through this church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And to step into that. To step in, to get rooted, get active, and to sow. Because that's how God builds his church how he builds his capital C universal church through each local gathering of believers walking in obedience and walking in the disciplines he's given us that's how we are all in on his commands that's how we cling to his promises and one promise that many of us probably know and maybe know by heart is in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 to seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you I love the message version where that verse and the verses surrounded are translated, what I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can't respond to God's giving. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find your everyday human concerns will be met. So if we could stand, I want to close tonight in worship as we do every Saturday. But we have the Hiltzes in the back that would pray for you, Anthony and Amanda. I'll be right here. And as we go into worship, if you want to come up to the altar, because maybe you've never steeped your life in God reality. Maybe you've never stepped into this generous grace that we've talked about. You've never responded to the generous grace of Jesus Christ. Man, don't leave tonight without responding in kind to what Jesus did for you. But secondly, this verse talks about how, how your human concerns will be met. Maybe you've been waiting for some concerns to be met for weeks, months, years. But you just know tonight you need to stand with somebody in prayer for those needs that you're waiting to be met. We'd love to do that. But lastly, maybe this word stirred something specifically in you. God, I pray that we would have hearts that respond. God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that your grace extends mercy and forgiveness. No matter what we did a year ago, a week ago, in the last 24 hours, your grace is available because your work on the cross is so good, Lord God. God, I thank you that we don't have to earn your grace through giving. We don't have to earn it through striving, through toiling, through serving our tail off. God, it's, it's through Jesus Christ and nothing more. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace, but I pray that we would have hearts that respond in kind to your grace because your grace certainly covers us, but it also calls us, calls us out to the front lines, outside these four walls of the church where we're called to be actively ministering to those around us. 
calls us to live generously with our time, our talents, our treasures. God, I pray that we wouldn't be ones that can simply hear of your good news and your gospel and just kind of compartmentalize it to 90 minutes on a weekend. I pray that it would transform our hearts. It would transform our prayer life. It would transform our time in your word. It would transform our time in worship, our time gathering with other believers. God, I pray that it would transform our generosity. God, do a transforming work in our hearts. I don't know what you're doing for each person here, but I know your spirit wants to minister. So as we worship, we lift our hands, we praise your name, and we ask God, do a work in us. Again, if you need prayer, we've got people available.